You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you for being here as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. And let me invite you, as Chris alluded to, uh, to turn to Psalm chapter 45. If this is your first time here with us. We're in the midst of a Christmas series, and we're Redemption Church, so we are a little weird. And so we are picking a bit of an unusual Christmas series by going to the Psalter. And we've been looking at different Psalms uh, used in the New Testament that point to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. So last week we looked at Psalm chapter 2. Today we're going to go to Psalm chapter 45, which I'm sure will probably be the most unusual Christmas sermon you've ever heard. So with that, let's go to Psalm chapter 45. Let me read this beautiful psalm for us. We'll pray and then we'll get to work. So Psalm 45, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a maskeel of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, and your splendor and majesty. And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people." All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this Sunday, we are amazed at your love for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Father, we pray that this song of love would be heralded and proclaimed this day as we turn to Psalm chapter 45. Lord, which so beautifully pictures the love between a king and his bride, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the quintessential touchstone of popular music is the love ballad, right? It's ubiquitous. It is everywhere. The celebration of romantic love is chronicled in so many different top 100 hits throughout our popular music, right? We have some great classic love songs, right? Some of them you might remember as new releases, but you have songs like Nat King Cole singing with his smooth, buttery voice, unforgettable. We have the earnest Joe Cocker singing, you are so beautiful, right? Love songs are everywhere, and they are everywhere, and you know, there's a really lucrative combination when you combine love songs with Christmas songs. I don't know if you knew this or not, right? It's a, it's a winning strategy if you're in the music industry. From Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, or the creepily aggressive and suggestive Baby It's Cold Outside, right? When you combine love and Christmas, things happen. So of the writing of love songs, there really is no end. But yet... As we look to Scripture, the Scripture tells a song of love. It's a love song of God for his people. So romantic love in so many ways today is often reduced to nothing more than this idolatrous expression of the self. The Scriptures time and time again show us that marital love is a signpost pointing us to the real word, the true reality of God's love for his chosen people. So the sweet melody of love in marriage is like the shadow of a silhouette of the substance of Christ and his church in the dance of redemptive love. After all, according to Jesus, there is no marriage in heaven. Sorry for all of you who are engaged, right? This is the reality, right, of Jesus says. There's no marriage in heaven. The marital covenant is until death parts us. And so when eternity dawns, the shadow of human marriage and the sexual union will fade away at the rising of the sun of Jesus's kingdom. We will have no more need on that day for the signpost of human marriage once the great wedding day of the Lamb dawns. Yet heaven isn't the elimination of marriage, but rather heaven is the fulfillment of marriage. There will be just one marriage in heaven, the marriage between Christ and his bride, a marriage that will last for all eternity. And here I think we feel the ache of love that is innate, I think, in every human heart echoing across every love song voiced by people who are sinful and rebellious. These poets of our society, I think, long for a marriage to come, a marriage that they do not fully understand. Every celebration of intimacy, of bliss and joy and desire in marriage and in sexuality pales compared to what the saints will participate in at the consummation of our union with Christ on that day. 
So as we continue to study these messianic psalms here for this Christmas season, we turn to Psalm 45, which is a love song. It is a love ballad marked at the occasion of a wedding between the king and his bride. And so the psalm shows us that the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of a groom who will unite himself to his bride in eternal love. So this psalm anticipates and celebrates the covenantal love of our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is the sermon summary. Christ and his church are bound together in an indissoluble and glorious marriage. Christ and his church are bound together in an indissoluble, meaning it's not going to fade away. It's not going to break apart. It is permanent, and it's a glorious marriage. Psalm 45 helps us see this. So as we go through this psalm, we're going to go through it in five parts, the first of which I want to show is this idea of the heavenly marriage in verse 1. The heavenly marriage. The title of the psalm is important. This is the word of God. Even though our English translations begin where verse 1 is marked, my heart overflows, the subscription to the psalm is inspired right, by the Holy Spirit, and it helps us understand the context of many of the psalms. And here we see that this is a psalm that is classified by the sons of Korah as a love psalm. And the occasion of this psalm appears to be between the king and his bride. So as you can probably already sense, in terms of where we're going with the sermon, I'm going to take this psalm and its marriage and apply it to the spiritual realities between Christ and his church. Now, doing so perhaps raises several different questions concerning biblical interpretation, or what is called hermeneutics. How do we rightly interpret God's word? So the question here in Psalm 45 brings similar questions up that you might have if you're studying, for example, the book of Song of Solomon, which much to my wife's chagrins, I hope to preach in the near future as a book series. So, so these, the, the same psalm raises similar questions that you might have if you're studying Song of Solomon. So here is the question of the psalm that we have to answer. Is it faithful to the biblical text to take the song written for a royal wedding of an Israelite king and to make the connection to Jesus and his church? Is that a faithful handling of the biblical text? I'm convinced that the answer to that question is yes. Yes, it is. It is faithful to the biblical text. While we're not denying the literal meaning of the text in its original context, the scripture invites us to study scripture within the unity of its revelation. So through the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit invites us to see some prominent themes in scripture that help us understand the parts. These big swaths, these big themes given in God's word that help us understand the trees of the forest, if you will. So even though we have 66 books with many different authors in the Bible written over many different centuries, we believe that there is one divine author who brings the diversity of these books into a united whole. So therefore, we have cause 
We have reasons, we have justification to see how these biblical themes can be traced throughout the canon of Scripture. After all, Jesus himself told us to do this, didn't he? When he was on the road to Emmaus, remember? After his resurrection, and he takes two of those disciples and he shows them how all of the Scriptures find their fulfillment, how they point to him. So the technical term for what we're going to be doing today is called typology. Typology. And it's what I want to do today as we study this psalm. Now, typology is different from what is called allegory, right? Allegory spiritualizes the text and absolutely ignores the literal meaning of the text. That's when the reader is inventing meaning that they see in the Bible. Typology, on the other hand, seeks to honor the literal meaning, the plain reading of the text, but uses biblical theology as grounds for interpreting Scripture as a whole, as a unity. So let me give you an example, an easy one, right? Typology is like reading the story of David and Goliath and making the connection to Jesus being the true son of David who slays our enemy of sin. Right? Allegory does something different. It invents meaning and takes David's five stones that he plucks up from the river and uses to slay Goliath, and the preacher makes the applications, well, those five stones are the stones of faith and obedience and whatever, right? That's allegory. That's not what we're talking about here. Using these whatever stones that you invent to slay whatever your personal giants might be. That's a mishandling of the text. Do you see the difference between typology and allegory? So thus, by using typology and biblical theology, I'm convinced that it is faithful to look at Psalm 45 and say that this psalm is not just about a human marriage to a king, but this psalm points us towards the coming of Christ in his marriage to his church. That the New Testament not only permits this way of thinking, but actually encourages us to this way of thinking. The most important passage Connecting to the spiritual marriage of Christ and his church is actually found in Paul's teaching on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And here is where Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives and indicates that the marriage covenant finds its fulfillment in the gospel. It's interesting, we go to Ephesians 5 and we typically try to create a list of things for wives and husbands to do, right? This is how you be faithful. And again, that's part of what Paul is doing, is giving instructions and pragmatic instructions in terms of how to live in the covenant of marriage. But we often miss the clear gospel undertones in which Paul makes those charges as he underlies it with the idea of Christ and the church as both husband and as bride. Listen to his words, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the spiritual marriage, this heavenly marriage that we're talking about here today is grounded in the idea of our union with Christ. This is a concept that dominates the New Testament, particularly the letters of Paul, of what it means to be in Christ or with Christ or hidden in Christ. It's the idea that Christ is our husband who gives himself up for us 
through his death upon the cross and who by his blood sanctifies us for his glory. That Christ sets his love upon us and cleanses us and makes us holy. So with these clear understandings of the gospel fleshed out for us in the New Testament, we can go to Psalm 45, this wedding song, and we can see that this is a wedding song with a messianic message. It's got a messianic message. It's pointing us to the realities of our union with Christ and the blessed communion that the church experiences with her husband. And so this psalm begins with this call to celebrate this marital love. So look at the, just the first verse of the psalm. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You see, as the songwriter begins to sit down and to pen this composition about marital love, he says his tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe, meaning This occasion is bringing so much inspiration, so much joy, so much overflowing excitement and zeal that this is bringing musical inspiration to him. There is no writer's block for him here as he looks and beholds this wonderful display of love. His heart is overflowing and the tongue is ready to sing like a scribe being prepared to write. So as we consider the heavenly marriage, let's second consider the majestic king in verse 2 through 9. So a big portion of this psalm is describing the king, the king in his majesty. Let's look at the way this king is described. The psalmist first writes of the majesty of the king in verse 2. The king is more handsome, he says, than all the sons of men. Verse 3 describes the king who wields military power with his sword upon his thigh. He is mighty. He has strength. He comes across with splendor and might, the psalm says. So verse 4, though, highlights the king's purpose. That not only is he victorious in his holy endeavors, but he aims, the psalmist says, to advance the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness that like a sharp arrow, the king's aim is deadly and precise. His purposes strike the hearts of his enemies. No enemies can stand before him. Now, verse 6 of this psalm is important, right? This is a verse that will be picked up in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. And it points to the scepter of God's reign entrusted to his anointed son and promised Davidic king. So the psalm here we see is this messianic one. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So the image here of the psalm is the idea that God, who possesses the right and the authority to rule, is entrusting it to this Davidic king. Similar as we saw last week in Psalm 2, Jesus is the one who mediates God's authority and judgments upon the earth. So this psalm, as a Messianic psalm, points us to Christ, the chosen and anointed King of the Lord, the one in whom the Lord will pour out the oil of gladness upon his head, as we see in verse 7. So this psalm describes the majesty, the value, the supremacy of this king. Right? We also see this description of this extravagant wealth 
and beauty as his robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, while the king has his companions, ladies of honor as his right hand. This is a majestic description here of the groom. Now, the majesty and splendor of the king here in Psalm 45, I think, points us so clearly to the marvelous majesty and grandeur of Christ himself. The description of this king points us to Jesus as the quintessential man, as the man. In Jesus dwells both the fullness of humanity and deity. And so at Christmas, we remind ourselves of the incarnation of the Son of God, right? When God the Son became enfleshed and dwelt among us, the union of humanity and divinity in the person of Christ. And so as we know who Jesus is and his character and who he is as his identity, he is the manliest of men. He is undefiled by the ugliness of sin. He is perfect in every way. Jesus's holiness and righteousness makes Jesus the most alluring, the most attractive, the most beautiful person who ever walked upon this earth. And so Jesus is alluring. He's attractive. He's desirous. The king, we're described, he speaks with grace upon his lips and his graciousness results in this forever blessing of God. So church made this Christmas season, made one of the things that we do this year is to pause and to cherish and behold our king, our God, our husband, that he is the most handsome of the sons of men, filled with grace, strong in his decrees and in his purpose. He brings victory to the cause of righteousness. You see, the father has given the scepter to his son, and Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the precious, he's majestic, he's worthy, he's filled with beauty, that there is no one more alluring, there is no one more deserving of our praise, there is no one more perfect than Jesus Christ. Church, he is not too good to be true, as you might think about someone's eHarmony profile, right? There's no lying here. There's no fibs here. There's no Photoshop here to make him more beautiful. He is as beautiful as you think he could be, and even more. There is no one greater, no one more precious than Jesus. Next, let's look at the desired bride, because we come into this story as well. Not only the majestic king, but the desired bride and her description in verse 10 through 12 of this psalm. In verse 10, we get this change of focus where we go from stopping to thinking about the king and the focus then becomes upon the bride. And the daughter is immediately urged in verse 10 to forget her people and to forget her father's house. That marriage, as we see taught in Genesis, is a leaving and cleaving, right? It's a leaving of your father and mother. It's a clinging to your spouse in, in the Lord. And in the same way, as the church unites to Christ in this heavenly marriage, we forsake our former way of life. We leave the dead to bury their own dead. Our car, we leave behind our carnal desires. We leave behind our old pattern in our life, our, our former loyalties. All of that goes away. We now count everything as lost that we might gain Christ. This is the invitation that the psalm gives to the bride. Forget your people. Forget your father's house. You have a new identity now. 
in your marriage to your husband. Yet verse 11 shows us, astonishingly, right, that the king desires the beauty of the bride. Now, as we think about this as it applies to the church, we have to remind ourselves that we are not the beautiful bride, right? The beauty that we have to the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that is innate within us. In fact, we're just the opposite. We're rather ugly and rather filthy. But because of the gospel, we know that beauty is imputed to us. It is given to us. The beauty that Christ beholds in his church is his own beauty, given to us by faith, that as he sanctifies his bride and washes her clean with his blood. So the church has the response, as the psalmist says here, to bow our head to, the, to our husband, not just as our king, but to our husband. The well-known commentator, Matthew Henry, commented on this passage in this way. He said, the church formed of true believers is here compared to the queen whom by an everlasting covenant, the Lord Jesus has betrothed to himself. This is the bride, the lamb's wife, whose graces are compared to fine linen for their purity, to gold for their costliness. For as we owe our redemption, so we owe our adorning to the precious blood of the Son of God. These are the miraculous truths of the gospel here, church, that it is through the blood of Christ that we wretched and ugly sinners become the beautiful bride that Jesus is the faithful husband who sets his love upon us as his church and who sanctifies us and redeems us so that we might be his own. You see, his love knows no limit to its sacrifice. He lays down his life for the beauty of his bride. He desires, right, desires his bride as he lays down his life for her. And Jesus is that faithful husband who, who literally takes his own righteousness and wraps it around his defiled bride, making her holy clothing and splendor undeserved. And so because Jesus has set his affections upon us in his sovereignty, we know that we are one with him, that there is security in him. And because we are one with him, we are in a privileged position, as in verse 12 describes, people desire our favor. Why? Because we are one with Christ. We have an intimate relationship with him. So that leads, thirdly, to consider here the desired bride. Right, hold on, I got confused in my notes. Let me try that again. So we have moments in our life, don't we? We have moments in our life where we don't always feel like the beautiful bride, do we? <laughs> we don't feel like we're worthy of the affection of Christ. Sometimes we feel rather unworthy of it, don't we? Sometimes we, we look at our hearts and you see such filth, such defilement, such sin, and such wretchedness, and you think to yourself, who could, who could love this? Who could love me, the sinner that I am? But church, we have good news. We have a lover of our souls who desires us, not because we are worthy, but because he is. Jesus is the faithful husband who pursues his bride at any cost. Jesus will have you. 
He will make you clean. If the Son of God has set his affections on you, you will be seduced by his love and secured in his embrace. As we sing the song, one of our favorites that we sing at Redemption Church, the song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I always love the last line there in that final verse. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. This is the dynamics here that we're talking about, right? Here's the wonder that we are both worthless, you are worthless and undeserving of the love of God, let alone the love of the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords, but yet by God's sovereign love and affection for you as his bride, he desires us. He unites himself to us. Our worth comes not because we are worthy, but because of the one to whom we are united. He is worthy. And so therefore, we are worthy because we're connected to Christ. We are the unworthy bride who has worth because of our worthy husband who has set his affections upon us. And that leads fourthly to this joyous union described in verse 13 through 15. The marriage between Christ and this church is a joyous one. There are a few days as beautiful and as exciting and as happy as a wedding day. Even if your wedding day was many, many years ago, I think we can all look back if you've been married and and hearken and remember that day. Even if you've never been married, just going to a wedding, there's something joyous and, and wonderful about that event. And so in verse 13, we see this picture here of this consummation of the wedding and the joy that it brings. The princess is in her glorious chamber with robes described of interwoven with gold, and we are led to the king. Similarly, right, the church is cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, and we are led by the Holy Spirit to be united with Christ, that the day is coming, church, when we will see the Lord with unveiled faces. At the great wedding feast of the Lamb, there will be a day of gladness and joy when we walk down the aisle in the Holy of Holies and are forever wed to our husband. Our union with Jesus, as we consider it, it ought to bring us great joy because it reminds us, right, that, that Christ has freely given himself to us as his church, that Jesus doesn't withhold any graces from you as his bride, that Jesus delights in his church. He cherishes her. He loves her. He nourishes her. He protects her. Right? As the Puritan John Owen wrote, he said, So in carrying on this union, Christ freely gives himself to the soul. Precious and excellent as Christ is, he becomes ours. He makes himself available to us with all his graces. You see, marriage for so many is a source of trouble and pain for people in this life, either in its absence or because of the difficulty of marriage itself. You see, marriage is a sign that points to our heavenly marriage in Christ. But we are sinners, and we often disfigure that sign by our sin. So if you are married now, perhaps your marriage has been challenging and difficult and hard 
And it has required great work and sacrifice as you've worked through your own sin. But yet God has helped you to persevere, to be committed to one another, to be faithful to one another. And I pray that God would continue to strengthen you and help you as your marriage becomes a more visible display of these realities of the gospel that we're talking about here. This display of the permanence and the joy and the gladness of the church's union with Christ. But yet some have felt the pain of broken marriages and the sting of divorce. Sadly, human sin can distort the beautiful truths that we're talking about today. These beautiful truths to which marriage ought to point us. And of course, the more beautiful the edifice, the more horrifying the vandalism. But here is good news. Here is the good news of the gospel, that though our commitment may waver in this life, and though we may find ourselves repeatedly in patterns of unfaithfulness to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and even though we may whore ourselves out to a myriad of false lovers, Jesus' commitment will not fade will not fade. His redemptive purposes are like a sharp arrow that hit its target. He will woo. He will seduce. He will take his bride as his own. And in the ravishment of this sacred marriage, we will experience the ecstasy and the pleasures that are only to be found in his right hand. Here is the good news. Christ will never divorce his church. Never. Every pain, every hardship experienced by the presence or the absence of marriage, will be replaced by pleasures so delightful that human language cannot describe them. Let me say that one more time. Every pain and hardship experienced in your life by the presence or the absence of marriage will be replaced by pleasures so delightful that human language cannot describe. You see, what awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth is marital bliss, eternal and forever, and the outpouring of the great fountain of love, the Lord Jesus Christ, who unceasingly pours out love for us as his people. You see, if you are married, the best of every moment of pleasure and intimacy and love that you've experienced in your marriage is but a drop in the ocean of the love of Christ for his church. Church, you are beloved by Christ, and we will one day share in the ravishment of divine love through our union with Christ. And that leads, fifthly, to the eternal glory in verse 16 and 17. The pleasures that we enjoy have their aim, not merely for our enjoyment of them, but for the glory of Christ, right? That is the aim. The glory of Christ is the chief end in which God does all that he does. It's the purpose of the world. It's the purpose of our lives is to give glory to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, this psalm shows us that our pleasure and God's glory are not at odds with one another. That God is glorified as his church enjoys and savors the wonderful communion of the marital covenant we have with Christ. So within this royal marriage we see described, there's this reproduction that takes place in verse 16. In place of your fathers shall be sons. You will make them princes in all the earth, the psalmist says. So as children come from the king's marriage and princes begin to fill the earth, 
this Israelite king will, will be fruitful. He'll be multiply with his new bride. So similarly, the church's union with Christ produces his own sort of replication of the image of Christ. That through the love of Christ, the church grows, it expands, it bears fruit in the world. And as the gospel is proclaimed, the church of Christ grows. And so too does the rule and reign of his kingdom upon the earth. But the joyous wedding of Christ and his church has at its aim the glory of Jesus. Look at, look at verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. You see, the name of Jesus will be remembered throughout all generations. The nations will praise him forever. And as we consider this great and glorious plan of redemption, this love song that runs throughout the Bible, we praise our God who is filled with wisdom and goodness and glory. And for all eternity, Christ will be magnified and glorified through his marriage to his church. This is a love song as old as time itself. This is the love song to which all other love songs point that the redemptive love of Christ will be praised for all eternity, praised with songs, with lyrics unceasing, with fresh new melodies and harmonies for all eternity. And may Christ, our husband, be praised forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come so humbled, Lord, that in your infinite wisdom, you have set your love upon your church as your bride. And Father, we are so unworthy, so undeserving. But Lord, you are the majestic husband who sets your affections and desires upon your church. And Lord, you have not held back any of your graces from us, Lord. You have given up your own life. You have spilt your own blood to purchase us and to have us as your own, to sanctify us and to wash us clean through the washing of water of your word. Father, you have done marvelously through your son. And Father, we are humbled, Lord, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would unite himself to us in this wonderful heavenly marriage. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus. And Father, I pray that for those who feel so unworthy and sinful and despised, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin. But Lord, that they might look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that they would repent and believe upon him for the salvation of their sins and the joy of what it means to belong, to be united with Christ. Father, I pray that you would save those who are lost. And Lord, that you would glorify yourself as your church expands and grows. Lord, may the name of Jesus be remembered forever and ever. Amen.